If you have your Bibles, open up with me to the book of Luke, chapter 18. And, uh, and while you're turning there, I want to walk right here and acknowledge something worthy of being acknowledged. And that is this precious couple right here, my brother, Herbert and Miss Dot, on their, they are celebrating 74 years of marriage. This is my testimony to my marriage. The answer is one word, Jesus. Amen. It's one of my favorite couples. So thankful for those guys. All right, if you have your Bible, like I said, open up to the book of Luke, chapter 18. And I'll tell you how we got to this chapter. And, and while we are here uh, this morning, and that, that is last week, I had the privilege of sitting in the seat just like you are with no structured responsibility for me as a pastor. I had no real pastoral responsibilities last week. And so I came as a member of ABC and I came and I sat and Keith Pugh as my pastor proclaimed God's word over my life. And I sat and pondered what it was that Christ was teaching me and what he was calling me into with his kingdom. And I sat there with my sweet little, well, my goodness, he will be too soon, but my, uh, my little boy, Lewis, who he ended up being fine, but I thought he was a little puny, and so I kept him with me and out of the childcare. and so parents, you can thank me later for, uh, for that, but I held him there and had his little sweaty head, you know, all on my shirt and wrinkling it up, and I just kissed his little head over and over again, the whole service, and as God's word was being proclaimed, I, I was taken in and being confronted with the message that was being spoken. And that's how Christ works. He comes and he confronts us where we are. In fact, I would say where we are, that's where he meets us. And that's where he confronts us. He confronts our worldviews. He confronts our religious experiences or what we perceive even Christianity to be. And Jesus comes and he speaks a word that can, as Hebrews 4.12 says, it can go directly through anything that exists in front of us. It can go right through this little sweater here, right into the heart and expose death. And that's what he was doing to me last week when I was holding my little boy. And maybe you were considering some of the same questions that, that I was considering, but it, it was questions about what I value, what I treasure. Because I wonder, did I treasure the kingdom as the way that it was being proclaimed in Matthew 13? That they sold everything they had to buy the land that had that treasure in it. And what I thought about was something like this. I wondered, am I teaching my little son? Am I teaching my family by the way that I live and the way that I talk and by the way that we budget and by the way that we do really anything? 
the way that we treat people, the way we talk about others, the way that we view and speak of God. Am I teaching him, my little sweaty head boy, am I teaching him to build his life on the right things? Like, is the kingdom of Christ recognizable to my family and our home? Those are the kind of questions that I was asking. And the reason why I was asking them went something like this. Is whether or not we realize it or not, we oftentimes build the kingdom of Christ or what we would proclaim the kingdom of Christ to be around what we have grown up hearing that it is. And what I mean by that is we have our worldview. We have our experiences. We have what we've been building our life upon. And then we try to make the kingdom of Christ fit into that. And so what I was asking was, I was holding my little boy, as I was saying, are, are we building upon the right things? So here's what I want to say to you this morning is that honesty is very close to freedom. It is very closely associated with freedom. And for a lot of us, we're not that honest about where we are. And Jesus Christ has a way of in the kindest way, in the most patient way, in the wisest way, in the most loving manner, he is able to boldly speak into our lives where no other person could ever speak. He's able to shine light and expose what we would never wish to dig up. And today we're going to see that really play out over and over again as we walk through an entire chapter of the book of Luke. I want to read for you the text that got me here. It's found in Luke 18, and we'll start in verse 24. This passage was mentioned last week by Pastor Keith. It's the rich young ruler in his conversation with Jesus. And I'm going to pick up in the middle of that conversation, read a text, and then we're going to dissect really the whole chapter. The word of God says this in verse 24, Jesus said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And just to throw it out there, if you've ever heard that there's an actual place that's the eye of the needle and camels could barely get through it, and all, that's not true whatsoever. That was something people made up and then it made up for a good sermon line at some point. The point is it's impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Those who heard Jesus says this, they said what maybe you felt before, maybe what was actually echoing in my heart last week. And it went something like this when I was considering the value of the kingdom. I said, well, then who can be saved? We're told that Peter yells it out and here are the disciples ask an emotional question, one that probably you have thought before. Well, then who can be saved? Jesus said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. Father, I ask that you would use this beautiful word today 
to truly dissect our hearts, to leave us exposed, ready to be clothed by you in the perfect righteousness of Jesus. I pray in Christ's name, the the name above all names. Amen. I'm going to give you a, a phrase. It'll be what we say at the beginning. It's what we say at the end. It's found at the bottom of your outline, and it goes like this. We're going to see this woven throughout this chapter. Is that the possibility of the kingdom comes through the finished work of the king. The possibility of the kingdom comes through the finished work of the king. So today we're going to walk and we're going to start in in verse 9. If we have time, we are going to connect the first eight verses as well. But we're going to at least go uh, chapter 18, verse 9 through 19, verse 10. And so what we want to see is how Jesus confronts our natural inclinations in six areas in this text. And so if you will, join me in verse 9 and we're going to read a well-known parable. Starting in verse 9, God's word says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. He went down to his house right with God rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I want you to see that the first thing that Jesus confronts here is number one in our outline, and it's how we like to trust in our own goodness. He confronts our natural inclination to trust in our own goodness, our own righteousness. See, in the text, you see it pretty clearly. This Pharisee, he is a respected man in the community. He's a respected religious leader. Like there's probably nobody that will walk into the temple that day that thinks more about God's law than that guy. And he walks in and because of that, he probably has a prominent position in the temple. Not one that God gave him, but one that man gave him. And he walked in and it says that he stood by himself. But the way that we should understand this is he stood up alone. And as he was standing, he out loud praise. And he says, God, thank you that I'm not like other people. Thank you that I'm not like other men. 
And echoing in the hearts of those who would have been gathered to pray, they would have said, oh, let me be like this guy. Oh, can I just be like him? He said, thank you that I'm not like those sinners. Thank you that I'm not like extortioners and adulterers. Thank you that I'm not like, and you could see him. It's like he doesn't have his, you know, he's not praying with his eyes closed like we tell our kids to pray. He's not doing that. He's got his eyes wide open and he's focusing out the door around the corner to this tax collector in the side. And he says, thank you that I'm not like that guy. Thank you I'm not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give my tithes. Amen. That was his prayer. And the thing is, he learned to pray that way from his leaders. He didn't just come up with that. He learned it from where he grew up and went to his assembly. Jesus in Matthew 6, he talked about this kind of prayer. He said, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, he said, they will, will receive their reward. They'll get what they want. And what is it, everybody? The approval of those around them. They got it. He said, but when you pray, go into your room, shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't pray publicly. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't pray this morning while we're here. We ought to pray if we believe Christ is who he says he is. But we shouldn't pray like this guy. But it's easy to become this guy who trust in what you're doing. A lot of people that I know, and just as a, as a pastor walking with, you know, people for now, you know, for over 12 years, so many people, including myself many times, gauge your, the love that God has for you and, and, and how you feel about the Lord, theology, church, based on how good you perceive yourself to be doing. And so if you feel like you got a life blameless enough to stand up and pray, you feel like you're pretty awesome. This, this guy was like the pinnacle of what you wanted to be. And yet as he stands up, Jesus, Jesus said he told this parable so that people wouldn't be like this man, trusting in his own righteousness and looking down upon other people. We must understand where true goodness, where true righteousness comes from and see the kingdom that invites us into it. I want to read for you the words of the Apostle Paul. This is one who was a Pharisee. This is one who was zealous. One who, he says, according to the law, he was blameless. That means nobody that knew him could be like, could pinpoint areas where they thought he was just breaking the law. Like that, that, that that's a pretty good life. Here's what he says. Chapter 
3 of Philippians, verse 7. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And I love verse 12. He says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. What beautiful words. The, the same man, the Apostle Paul, he writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, where the true righteousness that comes through faith, where it comes from, how it's possible. He says, for our sake, he, that's God the Father, made him, that's Christ the Son, to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. He's in the one who had never sinned in his life. The one who perfectly loved God and perfectly loved his neighbor. He became sin on the cross and he was crushed. And he rose and he ascended and he's alive today. And for those of us who look to him, he gives us His righteousness, it's given to us. It's a gift. It comes by grace. It comes through faith and is found in Christ alone. My righteousness today, I stand before you, is not found in my works. My righteousness is not found in my goodness. My righteousness is not found in my morality. My goodness is not found in as I measured how good my neighbor was. My righteousness is in heaven. My righteousness is found in Christ and in Christ alone. That's the call of the kingdom. The word exposes the depths of our hearts and it shows that the only clothing that works is the righteousness of Christ. Here in Luke 18, Jesus is teaching us this through this parable and through this whole chapter. I love the words of Brennan Manning. I'm, I'm going to quote him several times today. Brennan Manning's a, a writer that has uh, really shaped a lot of the ways that I view and talk on the grace of God. But Brennan Manning, he, he was... He had a tough life. He made some tough decisions. Some that he would say were not very good. He was a man who found himself several times on the streets. He found himself in addictive behaviors. Brennan at one point 
became a vagabond minister. He lived in the streets of New Orleans and he preached the gospel to those who were homeless and, and those whom he believed were making decisions very similar to those that he had made in the past. And he oftentimes fell back into lifestyles that were not healthy. At the end of his life for the last several years, he died in 2013, he wrote books on who God is and what he's like and the beautiful grace of God. And he wrote a book called The Ragamuffin Gospel for people who were beaten up and feel broken down. And the beautiful word of grace, the word of God, the gospel of Jesus that speaks even, even to us. He says these words, he says, Jesus comes not for the super, the super spiritual, but for the wobbly and the weak need who know they don't have it all together and who are not too proud to accept God's hand down of amazing grace. It's not the Pharisee that was standing up talking about how awesome he was, but it was the God that was outside that was beating his chest that wouldn't even look up. And he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He went to his house justified and not so the other man. So we see how Jesus confronts our natural natural inclination to trust in our own goodness. But secondly, he confronts in this same passage our natural inclination to look down upon other people. He uses the word contempt. And so I'll, I'll tell you about that word real quick. Just this is a kind of Colby definition compiled from numerous sources, but contempt, just the feeling that someone's beneath you, that they're worth, they're worth less than you are. It's at least a disregard for a person and typically a disdain for their life. It's the ability to write off someone oftentimes just because of their appearance or our perception of who they are and what they're like. It's here that we label people in our minds and we stamp on them the value we deem them worthy of having. That can happen so easily. And that's what was taking place here in this parable. Thank you that I'm not like other people. I mean, look, it's good to not, I mean, you don't want to be like, man, you know what I want to be when I grow up? An extortioner. You know, I want to be like the adulterer. That's what I want to be like. No, that's, that's not what he's saying. That's not, certainly not what Jesus is saying. What he is saying is, is this Pharisee has no idea somehow that he is on the exact same playing field as the tax collector who's been oppressing his society outside. That in terms of God's grace, they are equally needy. And he doesn't have that built into his system. That doesn't fit his worldview. It doesn't fit what he's experienced and what he's watched in the community of faith that he's walked in. For him, he knew the goal was to do what he was doing and be who he was and for him to get the reward of their approval. He looked down upon people. I think it's very easy for us to do that as well. I want to offer you something. This is... If you, if you were taking notes, and I'd encourage you to, I'm going to give you several lies of identity 
Several lies of identity. And, and what I mean by this is not only these are lies that we tell ourselves, and I believe oftentimes because we measure our life by these and, and we believe these lies ourselves, we view other people in the same light. So these are several lies of identity. The, the first one is this, is that we believe this lie that I am what I have. I am what I have. And, and seeing the flip side of that, that we would look at somebody else and say, they are what they have. That's how we're going to base their worth. That might be how we base our worth. I am what I have. Secondly, I am what I do. And they are what they do. I am what I do. I, I think this is very telling in the society that we live in, in the culture that we have, the way that we have conversations with each other. We go up and what is typically the first thing that we ask somebody when we're having a conversation? What do you do? What, what, what do you do? We need to be reminded by Jesus that we are human beings before we are human doings, okay? <laughs> like it matters who you are. Like you are a person, an image bearer. How your life is not defined by what you have and what you do. Another lie is, I am what has been done to me. I am what happened to me. Or they are what was done to them. Another lie of identity is this, I am what other people say or think of me. And I'm no better than that. I'm whatever they say. So if I'm the Pharisee and, and they, they say, he is the best person in the world, look at that righteousness. Or I'm the tax collector who's been oppressing my society and stealing from them. He, he's no better than that moment. It's lies of identity. What about this one? I am what I say or what I think of myself. Some of you, this is the biggest battle that goes on in your life. At least that you can articulate. There's bigger ones that are probably taking place. But it goes where you, it doesn't matter what's happening around you. It doesn't matter about the encouragement that you receive or the community that you have. That you, for whatever reason, cannot get away from who you say that you are. That you are positive. That even if everybody around you said that there's hope for you and only hope, you see yourself as worthless. And maybe that was a word spoken over you and words are powerful, my friends, but maybe that was a word spoken over you from someone else and it came from that thing we just said a minute ago, what was said of you. But it is a lie. It is a lie. You're not defined by what you say of yourself or think of yourself. And other people are not defined by what they say or they think of themselves. Last two, I am nothing more than my worst moment. I'm nothing, I'm nothing more than my worst moment. And lastly, I'm nothing less than my best moment. These are all lies of identity. And if we believe them, it puts us in a posture that is not one of the kingdom. It's one being defined and it's one being spoken over and one having our life built upon something other than who Jesus Christ says that we are. 
And it puts us in a position to either beat up ourselves, isolate ourselves, look down upon other people, uh, beat them up with our words, break them down with our thoughts. It keeps us from truly leaning into the love of God, loving ourselves as Christ has loved us, and loving others as he has loved them and loves us. There's several lies of identity. I, I, I want to read for you a, a flip side, the way the Apostle Paul talked. This is 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. He said, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, but I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. The apostle Paul feels fully loved. He knows, he, he pursues the goal to make it his own because he knew that Christ Jesus had made him his own. He knew that he was the Lord's and who he was in him. But he also knew and could never forget the grace of God that was given freely to him, that he was the foremost of sinners. Another quote that I love from Brennan Manning is this, is he said these words, he says, my deepest awareness of myself is that I am deeply loved by Jesus and I have done nothing to earn it or deserve it. How great is that? My deepest awareness of myself is that I'm loved by Jesus. Wow, that, that is a heart that's been transformed. And that keeps us from looking down upon people. Like who would we look down upon? Who did Paul look down upon? If he's believing who he is in Christ and that he received his mercy as the foremost of sinners, who's he gonna look down upon? Jesus confronts this in this parable. But he continues on, and so join me in Luke 18 again. In verse 15, and we're going to see here, he's going to front, confront the natural inclination that we have to feel that we don't need the complete grace of God. To feel we don't need the complete grace of God. Verse 15 says this, Now they were bringing even infants to him, that he might touch them. He might lay his hand upon them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. Here they go. They're, they're looking down upon people. They're rebuking them. They're in my way. They're in Jesus's way. But verse 16 says, but Jesus called them to him and saying, and said, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. I, I was just thinking about this a little while ago. My, my little buddy Dakota was up here just hitting the floss, you know, during the... <laughs> I've never seen anybody in my life floss to whatever song we were singing, you know, to Hosanna or Come Thou Found. Like, but, but here's what I thought about when he was doing that is I, I thought about one, this text, and, and it reminded me, 
has no reflection of Dakota when I say this. I, I was reminded of the party that was going down at the prodigal's house. You, you remember that, the party? See, the older son was like, what is happening? Where is that music coming from? What is that smell? And daddy's like, that's some good beats that we put on. And that's a big fat cow. <laughs> it's the best food. The whole town is dancing at our house. And your brother, your brother, the one that did the worst, he is doing the floss at the party. Now, how could he do that? Why could the son ever dance? One thing and one thing alone, the love of his daddy. The love of his daddy. That's why he's dancing. We need to have that in our head. And I think maybe a little bit of that little, those moves that Dakota had in our hearts when we think of the work of God. But we are people who our natural inclination is to feel like we don't really need grace. To feel we don't need the complete grace of God. And what Jesus shows us here is a picture where infants are being brought to him. And, and listen, I, I've had four of them in my house. And they need everything. They don't do anything on their own except for cry and poo-poo. That's all they do. Like they, they do nothing else. That's what infants do. Can you not say poo-poo in church? Like y'all are looking at me like I'm mad. Like... Paul, Paul said rubbish, and look it up in the Greek. It's way worse than what I just said, okay? Uh, listen, you know what they do? And it's because of that that Jesus says something like this. It's little infants. They, they can't do anything on their own, and they would never take claim to their own righteousness, ever. Jesus says, that's how you are to come to me. It doesn't mean you stay like a child and act like a kid at church. That's not what it is. Some of us need to hear that lesson. Quit acting like a kid, okay? But like, like you need to grow up in maturity, but never lose a childlike heart and never miss the picture that at least Luke is picturing here. And it's an infant. We need the complete grace of God. And he's teaching us something as he was teaching his disciples. No, get those kids away. He's like, no, we need them here to teach you and to teach us. Remember Brennan Manning, my deepest awareness of myself is that I am deeply loved by Jesus and I've done nothing to earn it or deserve it. That it's by grace alone. It comes through faith alone and Christ alone. That it's not my righteousness, but it's his. That he who knew no sin became sin so that somebody like us might become the very righteousness of God. Let's keep reading under the same point, verse 18. 
And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a great question. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. Now, Jesus is not questioning his own deity here. Okay? Jesus knows who he is very well. He's not wanting us to read this and speculate whether he really is God or not. He is God. What Jesus is doing is speaking to a man who comes up to him believing that he's just a mere man and calls him good. A man who we're going to find out very quickly struggles with his own identity and his goodness. Jesus says, why do you call me good? Only God is truly good. He says, well, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. The young man said this. He said, all of these I've kept from since my youth. <laughs> I've nailed all of those. All of these I've kept since my youth. I, I want to read for you a verse that is so helpful here. Romans chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. The word of God says, now we know that whatever the law says... It speaks to those who are under the law so that, I love this phrase, every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Like that is so blunt like the, part of the purpose of the law, remember, Paul calls the law the ministry of death. Part of the, the law or the primary purpose of it is so that we see what? That we're not loving God and loving our neighbor the way we're called to. So that our mouth will be stopped. And then we'll understand that we need something outside of ourselves for salvation. See, this guy doesn't get it. And look, he's just following what he's seen and heard, but he's accountable to it. He walks up to Jesus. He says, man, I've kept all of these from my youth. When Jesus heard this, Mark tells us in, in his account that when Jesus heard this, he looked at him and he loved him. That's our Christ. He looked at him and he loved him. But he said, one thing you still lack Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. And then you'll have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Now see, Jesus doesn't answer this way to everybody he talks to. Like when he's talking to the woman at the well, she says, where do I get that water? Where can I get the living water? He doesn't say, go sell everything and give it to the poor. Then I'll give you a drink. He doesn't do that. He says, can you go get your husband? She says, I don't have one. He goes, that's right, that's right. You've had five and the guy that you live with right now is not him. Before they finish the conversation, he deals with her the way she views religion, worship. And he tells her that worship takes place by how? The truth and the spirit. Spirit and in truth. 
Jesus changes her whole world in a conversation, but he doesn't say the same thing that he says to the rich young ruler. Jesus knows us and he loves us. It's one of the most beautiful truths about Jesus. He knows everything about you and he still loves you. And he knew this man and what he confronts with him is still a natural inclination that I believe we have. And it's the fourth thing that we're gonna look at today. And it's our love, how we love our wealth and comfort more than we love our neighbors. Jesus confronts this with this man. See, the entire law, we're told, points to one thing. It can be summarized. Jesus said, and love God, love your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. The apostle Paul knows and assumes love of God in the answer. And he says the whole law, law can be summarized in love your neighbor as yourself. When Jesus hears him say that he's loved his neighbor as himself, which is what we have here in the Ten Commandments. You know, he, he didn't commit adultery. He, you know, he didn't, I mean, whatever it was, like he saw them at face value. Jesus says, all right, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. What he's saying is this, is that my man, it, it's impossible, first of all, to perfectly obey the law. Understand that. Come to me like a little baby. Remember my story about the Pharisee and the tax collector. But also, person that he loved, this rich, young, successful man, he says, you love your wealth and your comfort more than your neighbor. That's what he's communicating to him. And I think for us, like we have a really hard time often separating what it is like, we'll say, well, we, we believe these things, you know, we're, we're good in these areas. Uh, we're reading our Bible. We're following. We know that God's grace is huge and deep and great. We know that he loves us. But then it's like, we separate that from the life that we live. And that, that's not, that's not possible. And so this guy says, I kept the whole law. And Jesus is like, you don't, you're not loving your neighbor. So you couldn't be keeping the whole law. That's what he's doing here. He confronts for us, he, he confronts us in our hearts as we watch him confront somebody that would have been, I mean, this is the most successful guy that he talked to that day. And Jesus says, you actually are missing the point. Go sell everything you have and follow me. I've been confronted recently with Jesus's words in Matthew 25. Jesus says that when he comes back, that when he returns, that he's going to separate people like he separates sheep and goats. Like, like, like a, he's going to separate people in this way. And he says that the way he's going to separate them is based on what they did or what they did not do to the least of these. You've got people and they say, well, Jesus, when did we see you naked? When did we see you thirsty? When did we see you hungry? When did we see you in prison? And then he's gonna say, well, what you did to the least of these, you did to me. Jesus, when did we not give you water? When did we not do? What you didn't do for the least of these, you did not do to me. Jesus tells the parable of the talents and it's what we do with what we own what we do with what's been given. And the one that buries his in the ground, Jesus calls him wicked. 
That's the way he refers to it in the parable. And so that, those words of Jesus, I'm having to deal with in my heart as I know that he has deep grace, full grace, a finished work, and that he loves us and he knows everything about us. I can't separate his love for me and also what his word says and speaks over us. I can't mark out Matthew 25 in my Bible because, you know, I know that he's gracious. You don't come into the kingdom based on your works. But when Jesus Christ, when you receive Jesus Christ and his grace is lavished upon you, it ought to radically affect the way you view all people and everything that you own. For this man, he walked away from Jesus sad because it said he had many possessions. Eugene Cho is... Uh, a, a guy that I, I follow and, and really love his communication style. He's an author, pastor, and I would call him a world changer. Eugene Cho says this. He says, generosity is what keeps the things I own from owning me. In other words, generosity isn't just intended to bless others. It's also, in, it's also to liberate my life. See, Jesus is speaking words of power and truth and freedom over this man. He walks away. And in light of that, Peter and the disciples, they cry out and they say, well, who can be saved? And Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said, we've left our homes and followed you. And he said to Peter, truly I say to you, there's no one who's left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. What he's saying is this, is anything, anything that you have to turn from to receive the gospel, anything that you have to do, anything you have to get rid of, and by the way, getting rid of a wife or children, that is not what he's saying here, okay? So do not think he is. What he's saying is this, is anything that's keeping you from me, humble yourself and submit to me. Submit to me. That's where life and freedom is going to be found. And to a people who I believe it's easy for us to love our wealth and love our comfort, because we wouldn't say we have wealth because we'd look at somebody else down the street, you know, and say, well, they have wealth. You have wealth. At least most of us do. And we tend to love our wealth and our comfort more than we do our neighbors. Oftentimes, I know of me, I'll sacrifice what won't cause me to have to truly sacrifice. I'll give away what won't actually make me sacrifice. That, that, that would be the natural inclination. That's not the life we're called to. Generosity is what keeps the things I own from owning me. Keep going with me, verse 31. And Taking the 12, he said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the son of man by the prophets will be accomplished for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. Jesus was teaching them something that they couldn't see. Jesus was showing himself to be the true rich young ruler. Say, what? 
Paul understood this. He's understood a lot of things today, but he understood this when he wrote to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7, he says, But as you excel in everything, in faith and in speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, excel in this grace as well. Talking about the grace of generosity. He said, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus is saying to his disciples, there's nothing I'm calling this man to that I'm not doing myself. Jesus walking out of the greatest riches, humbling himself even to death on a cross so that you and I might have life. And though we're poor, we might be found rich in him. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he'd emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Last two, and we'll do them quickly. The last two is Jesus moved straight from this scene to they begin to make their way to Jericho. And as he's walking to Jericho, we have another moment where another person becomes a hindrance to the disciples. Another person gets in the way. And it's here that Jesus will confront our natural inclination to miss Christ's compassion for the oppressed. We're told in verse 35 that as he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. And they told him, they said, Jesus of Nazareth Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out and he said, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him. They weren't that different from the Pharisee. They weren't that different from the disciples who said, get the kids away. They rebuked him. But he cried out all the more like the lady that we read about in the first eight verses who begged and begged and begged and pleaded and pleaded and pleaded until her request was heard. He said, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him and said, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Why is it that we don't seem to celebrate or have compassion for the oppressed unless we see them come to salvation before our eyes? Why is it that we have to have a story before us before we'll glorify God? See, what Jesus is showing here is this, the guy that nobody else had any hope for, the, the one that nobody else listened to. In fact, he was in, he was annoying them with his voice and he was in their way. Jesus heard him and he loved him and he healed him. 
He doesn't want us to miss his compassion for the oppressed. And lastly, he confronts our natural inclination to forget Christ's love for the oppressor. It's probably my favorite story in the book of Luke, but it's the, the story of Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus, we oftentimes, because we heard about him when we were little and we think of him as the wee little man and a wee little man was he, we don't think of him as an oppressor. But I can assure you that the crowds that gathered on the street, they did. He teamed up with the Romans who were oppressing the people and he was stealing from people. He was taken from them. He joined the wrong side and he was getting really rich off of it. He was an oppressor. But he, like the blind man, heard that Jesus was coming. And though he didn't get up and start screaming out, he climbed in a tree and probably made himself very vulnerable. If a guy's hated and he's climbed up in a tree, he ain't got nowhere to go, okay? That's, but he makes himself very vulnerable. He puts himself in a place. And Jesus, unlike us, more than likely, at least in our natural self, we would either despise we would look down upon, or we would certainly believe that God's grace couldn't be for a dude like that. And yet Jesus Christ stops where he is. He walks through the crowd, excuse me, and he walks right to the tree and he says, Zacchaeus, come into your house today. I'm coming over. And I don't know what all they talked about. I don't know what all went down, but what I know is this, is that Jesus said that on that day, salvation came to Zacchaeus's house. And Zacchaeus left saying words that were probably a little too big for his pocketbook. But he said, I'm going to give away half of what I have. And anybody that I stole from you, I'll pay back four times over. Now, I don't know if he could really do that. He, he may have been leaving the conference really pumped. I don't know. But, but, but he comes out and whether or not he could really come through with that with what he had in his bank account. That man was changed. He was transformed. He was different. Salvation had come to his house, the house of one that no one ever would believe it would come to. They were celebrating Jesus who was coming to defeat the Roman government, not the one who would walk up and save the oppressor. Today, I want you to see that the possibility of the kingdom comes to the finished work of the king. Today, Jesus meets you wherever you are. He confronts whatever your worldviews are. Whatever your idea of religion, Christianity, whatever it is that you think. He confronts it. And he invites you to follow him. To submit to him and his kingship. The kingdom he offers to you today and me today. He offers it to the one that maybe, there may be one in this room, you think, whoever it is in your head, that they, they don't deserve it, they can't get it, they, they'll never have it. He's like, that's exactly who it's for. Jesus brings hope. And it's hope to all people. It's hope for any person. Your identity is not found in those lies. Your identity can be found in Jesus Christ, who he is and what he says about you. 
Let's be empowered by Christ to see the world as he sees others, as he sees the world. And that we will respond and move because of the finished work of our King. Salvation comes to any of our homes who receive and trust in the finished work of Jesus. So wherever you are today, we're going to respond. We're going to sing. We've got, I think, three songs that, that, that we're going to be singing. And I, I just want to encourage you today to stand in response to God and his word. That there's nobody in this room who you're elevated in status to another person. That all of us need to find our place on the floor. <laughs> Humbled. Needy of grace. Last Brennan Manning quote of the day, he said, to be alive is to be broken and to be broken is to stand in need of grace. Today, we united, we stand because we are equally in need of Jesus Christ and his grace. And today, united, we stand because we are equally loved and cared for by Christ our King. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I ask that you would use it to mold us, to transform our life, Lord, that we wouldn't try to, to fit your kingdom uh, into our life like a little circle trying to be pushed into a square puzzle. Well, we, we wouldn't do that, but instead we would allow you to transform who we are and how we think or that you would make new. Help us see like you see and love how you love. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your grace. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.